0: We shall continue our Sunday sermon sessions in the Gospel of John, and we are certainly nearing the end of the Gospel. Today we find ourselves in chapter 19, and the portion of Scripture in question, verses 31 through verse 42. 31 through verse 42. We certainly have been within the immediate context and the theme of things revealed by the penmanship of the Holy Spirit through the vessel known as John, John the Apostle, and the information revealed is that of the Christ being a human being, man, yet God on earth. And this here within the structured hour of, of his sacrifice, and how he has always been in control, for he has the greater authority to give up his spirit, and he certainly has. And so in this portion, we will see the care that has come forward towards the body of the man Jesus, known as Christ, on this earth. Verse 31 says, I quote, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Of course, the reality of this capital punishment, in coherence to the traditions and the law of the Jewish mind, could not permit a contaminated element within the abode of their community, and therefore more pressing to the preparation of their day, which was for religious assembly, and understand it. In other words, we can't allow a dead body around here. And we can't wait until they're going to die on their own, because then that will just, you know, make a mess of our calendar. So therefore, a practice that was understood would be to expedite the process of death. For on the cross, it could take several days of, uh, well, torture, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word, but it seems torturous to me to be on a cross suffocating and dying slowly for several days. And so in order to speed the process, break the legs. Why? Well, once you break the legs they can't lift themselves up to take a breath. So they just hang in pain and agony and then depart from this earth. So that's the request. Can we do that so that we can get on with the process of our day here? Sabbath being the Saturday, known through Judaism and the law of old, and Sunday soon coming, of course, which would be the day we see our Lord and Master conquer death. So the soldiers came in verse 32. Soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man, and of the other who was crucified with it. And we spoke a bit about those two individuals, who would be there for a proper reason, Uh, and uh, one of them had indeed changed, hadn't he? The account of Luke would reveal that one of the commonly quoted or known as thief on the cross repented. He changed his mind, and he began to defend Jesus. And of course, if one is an honest student of the Scriptures, one can come to rightly handle the text which would reveal that the man, the thief on the cross, who had repented, had known Jesus previously, and would have certainly, in perhaps uh, a a credible argument, been immersed perhaps uh, with John the Baptist. He may have heard and followed John through on to the Christ, things of that kind, if you will. They were still alive, the point here in this text. These two individuals, these two thieves, quote-unquote, one repented, the other not, uh, and the legs are being broken to expedite the process of their death. But when they, of course, uh, came to Jesus in verse 33, they saw that he was already dead. spirit had left the body. They did not break his legs. And again, interestingly enough, for individuals who did not believe in Jesus and produced an act of great hostility and persecution towards an innocent man, are fulfilling the scriptures, God's providential whims. At times that in practical application for our thoughts today, in our walk, our faith, could allow us to know that even though evil people do evil things, which are evil and are not authorized or permitted by God, yet still God can at those moments utilize those acts from those evil people to bring forth a, uh, uh, bring forth a um, fulfillment, if you will, of his will, his providence in faith. <clears throat> Quite interesting to me. So, they do not break the legs of Jesus for they see that he had passed from this earth, if you will. But one of the soldiers, in verse 34, pierced his side with a spear. And this is not simply as an act of cruelty, though some may argue that that was the case. They just wanted to be extra mean on him, and just pierce him and stab him in the heart with a spear. No, I believe it was indeed a... um, uh, a practice to verify the man had passed away, uh, uh, or to make sure he is going to pass away, if you will. So no bones to be broken, but yet piercing uh, permitted by God, and of course, again, fulfillment of Scripture. And immediately, it seems, upon the spears piercing, blood and water came out. Isn't that interesting? Blood and water. Now there is, of course, a legitimate and credible Explanation through the medical realm, the scientific realm. That's not our uh, purpose this morning to go into the scientific or medical expertise of why the blood and the water. Though I am explaining to you that I did those studies, I had to ask that question. I wanted to know how this was possible, to have blood and water. And the answers are there, obviously. And you can find them if you seek them. The point is, what John is writing and what he wants us to focus on here is the humanity of Jesus. That is the focus point and priority of thought through John's pen. Jesus was indeed a human being, a man. And the reason that is important is because during the age in which John is writing this, there was great hostility against the thought that Jesus was God, and God was man, and man and God as one vessel on earth. Ah, That cannot be true. We're not going to teach it. We're going to say that Jesus was a man, and Christ within him only representatively if you will, not in true full essence, God on earth, Now, And so John, refuting that, is explaining the true essence and humanity of Jesus. He was indeed real, a man, walking among us as we see each other now. He bled. The Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen Coming King and Savior of the world, God was on earth in the form of a man. And if we see it through the perspective of the Holy Spirit's words we can clearly read, that should be comforting to us to know that God was one of us. What if God was one of us? Well, He was. And I stand before you in defense of that truth, for I would not be a believer if I could not defend it. Matter of fact, I may have even entertained for many years in my rebellion against God, believe that there is no such a thing as a God, and if there would be, why would He bother coming down here with us, where we live in sorrow and pain and evil and great sorrow? No, He understood, and He understands, because He became man. He lowered Himself from the majesty of His power on high in order to be... One of us. And he would limit the powers of his majesty on high in order to experience humanity in the form of a man. And that is important for us to understand and believe. For God on earth could have told himself, I don't want to experience hunger. And therefore stop himself from ever experiencing hunger. But he did not do that, did he? And at times he even allowed himself to be surprised by his fellow human beings. You see, to that angle and that excursion of thought is necessary for us to fully embrace the comfort that we can have and the healing that we can have through Jesus Christ as John wants us to fully embrace the fact that he was man. God walked on earth. And though that at times is a difficult thought, to fathom, to embrace, God, who has always been, is now, and will forevermore be, the great divine power, the engineering force behind all things that are intelligent and created, lowered himself to walk among us as mankind. Now, it's either a fantastical, elaborate myth that has fooled billions of people since its origin, or perhaps there is truly factual, objective, absolute reality to the account, witnessed and recorded. And of course, I and Hope you have come to know the truth of the matter, that yeah, As difficult as it might be for us to wrap our minds around it some days, or maybe more days than not, it is a truth, it is a reality, and it can be defended. For again, you'd find yourself asking the questions, why? That's where I was for a long time. Well, why this then? Well, why that? And I didn't like the answers. But then your heart softens and the years pass by, and you grow weary. And you begin to accept certain realities as they as they are. This is a fallen world. Not only was God on earth as man, but it revealed how fallen we are. That we murdered him. We murdered him, which is why I find it quite misguided. If with all love and respect, I share this, I, I find it quite. Misguided that so many who profess Christianity would believe that God becoming man on earth, murdered by the hands of men, and not only men, but men who were of the same family and culture and kind as Jesus, that somehow Jesus will return here and walk on this earth as man again. And I am well aware that a great many individuals we may love and respect and honor, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, who believe the misguided notions of false or erroneous teachings that would claim that Jesus is going to once again walk on this earth as man. And I understand the temptation to believe those things, yet they are not scriptural. And it is difficult for me to fathom any argument to give credibility to that position, looking at this account, why would he? Why would he come back and walk on this earth as man? He fulfilled all things. The plan was not thwarted. Mankind did not thwart God's plan. We don't have that power. No, John was revealing here. The truth of the matter. God was flesh. He became man. Jesus the Messiah. And we murdered him. We murdered him. The return of our Lord and Master. Will not to see him on, in flesh walking this earth. But rather as the scriptures reveal his return. The sky will open. The trumpets will sound. And all will bow down. And the day of judgment will be upon mankind. And we will, who are faithful will meet him in the skies and be with him in peace forevermore. Blood and water came out. There are so many angles and things to consider with this event. One, in priority, in context, John wants us to embrace the fact that God really was a man. He came down and was man. So, he was tempted in all things, like you and I are. And that was another one I struggled with greatly. To which my father would say certain things to me and trying to pierce me out of my rebellion and my hate towards God. He tried to ch- His love for me tried to change my heart for many years. And my excuse or my argument... Well, of course Jesus did sin. He was God. He doesn't understand us who sin, Because it was impossible for him to sin. So how can he understand and have compassion with us who fall deep in sorrow and pain and loss? It's impossible. A God who is a foreigner. He doesn't understand our ways... You see, that was my guilt producing justification to remain in sin and rebellion. But once you soften your heart and you begin to entertain the thought that maybe the answers are there and available, I was capable of understanding that this book certainly revealed the fact that Jesus was tempted in everything as you and I are. And that's why we have so much hope in Him. Because He knows what pain is about. And He knows what the temptations of this life are all about. And He said no. So that gives us hope that maybe we can say no, to a certain degree, mind you. We are a fallen people. And that again refutes the fact, or refutes a great many erroneous teachings out there claiming that Jesus was incapable of choosing to sin. Friends, with all love and respect, that is a lie. He, he could have sinned. Jesus could have chosen to sin. And he was tempted by the devil to do so. Why even give the effort if the devil would have known that it, was, it, it would have been impossible for Jesus to sin? Of course he could have sinned. Judas could have said no to betraying Jesus. And Jesus could have said yes to sin. But Jesus said no to sin. And they're in even more powerful and comfort to our lives, knowing that it is possible to say no to sin. Blood and water came out. The text continues. And he who has been... Or, sorry, verse 35. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe now this is John the author uh, of this gospel miraculously guided by the outpouring power of the holy spirit John was a man who had the governing ability through the outpouring power of the holy spirit to write an in inspiration John is the individual in which is speaking, to which was there and saw and witnessed. We understand that concept for today's courts as well. Bring in the witness. Bring in the witness. If there were no credibility to a witness, then why bring in the witness? Now it is true that some witnesses are quite shady and perhaps are lying under oath. You look at the resume of the man's life and the evidence surrounding the man. John was credible, he was upright, he was loving, he was pure. And he was certainly miraculously inspired to write this information from what he saw firsthand and he speaks of it as witness. And the text continues, For these things came to pass, verse 36, to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And I find it quite interesting and telling in verse 35. John says, so that you also may believe. He is a witness to the fact of our Lord and Master. So that you and I today, through the fulfillment of the scriptures, can read the scriptures and come to believe. Friends, the sole source power of your belief must come from the scriptures. For the only other option would be self, and we all know that self can be wrong. Self can be wrong, yet, what is true and inspired and fulfilled as the perfect law of liberty, John mentions. And speaks of its fulfillment. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Through the scriptures my dear friends. We can believe in Jesus Christ. And again another scripture says in verse 37. They shall look on him whom they pierced. Now in verse 38 it says. After these things. Joseph of Arimathea. Being a disciple of Jesus. But a secret one. More so accurately, a private one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Now let's take a a break here a bit from the text in order to reason with the text and its context and see the various insights we can uh, uh, gain to our Faith and practical application. What I find interesting is all of us in our beginning journeys of belief, if you will, in what God is or who He is and if He even exists, begin in such a broad view. A very broad view. We see it in all aspects of even mention of God. It could be through uh, uh, various uh, organizations or Various ways, I I don't know, Um, maybe you heard a song, maybe you watched a movie, Uh, maybe you heard a TV evangelist one day, Um, you know, back in my day when I was young, uh, we grew up with uh, uh, what you'd find on TV like Jimmy Swagger or uh, Billy Graham, maybe there, maybe, who knows, maybe a neighbor mentioned him, maybe you were born and raised and given a religious Affiliation, a religious denominational affiliation to which mom and dad went and grandma and grandma, you began your belief system broadly, meaning in a large spectrum. But once your heart began to truly, in independent accountability, with the intellectual capability to seek truth, the definite article, unique truth, one of a kind, Then you, in your path in life, begin to see what was broad become more so narrow, and more narrow, and more narrow, until it is refined. It is refined and focused. And everything that you began with in your broad way of seeing Christianity, or belief in a God, has now made its way to the pivotal moment of the truth, which sets you free from the bondage of the broader spectrum of your belief, which could be erroneous teachings, it could be erroneous traditional ways, views, this, that, practices, thoughts, whatever. And that has been a fascinating journey in our walk, my wife and I, since 2011. And I say that To the perspective of this man named Joseph and the other one we will see in verse 39 named Nicodemus. In this account, do we not find it quite revealing that those closest to Jesus, aside from John, had left? Had abandoned? Yet in this account, who are the individuals being mentioned? Would you know it? Two individuals of the Sanhedrin. The very political power and oppression that brought Christ to his murder. Two individuals in the compound of the Sanhedrin, which would have been the socio-political power and policy of Judaism in their age in the first century, two of them began quite skeptical, now finishing with a great act of honor towards this man named Jesus. Two individuals very wealthy, who are willing to separate themselves from their wealth in order to acquire what is good for the body of this man named Jesus. Their faith began quite broadly in the interactions they had with the Christ, yet now are finding themselves quite focused, more so on the fact that this man must have been the Messiah. He must have been the king of the Jews. Interesting, again, like verse 38 After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, I believe that to be the location, I think, known as where Solomon would have been, being a disciple of Jesus, and you can look at that, I may be wrong, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. So private in his discipleship, for fear, of course, of what takes place. Now, that is not to his credibility. That is indeed to his cowardice, mind you. To his cowardice. And we know that because of... Previous chapters explaining that those who stood up for Jesus in the church were kicked out of the church. If you're going to believe in that man and defend that man, then we're going to push you out of the church. And so there was consequence and removal of societal prestige or status if you chose to defend this man. yet at this point, at this time, Joseph of Arimathea, he had the courage. He saw, he knew, he finally embraced it and was willing to go forward and take a great moment of risk for his well-being on behalf of the body of this man named Jesus. And he asked Pilate, which tells me if he had access to Pilate, he had enough wealth, and he had enough influence to do so as a member of the Sanhedrin, and he took the body away it says, for Pilate at this point gave permission. And why would Pilate give permission? Because again, Pilate saw no true guilt in the man. He was not a threat to Rome. If he would have been, I assure you, through custom of Roman way and even Jewish way, they would have not been able to take away the body. He would have been there to remain and be shown as a uh, trophy of what happens to all uh, guilty parties or criminals and things of that nature. In verse 39, now Nicodemus who had first come to Jesus by night, here making reference again to John chapter 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. These items, of course, are quite priceless in the amount in which Nicodemus is bringing, letting us know that Nicodemus was a wealthy man. And these here, of course, are to preserve the body and to, well, in our common tongue, have a better smell because a body that is decaying, it has a peculiar smell and it don't smell good at all. That's why if you perhaps have watched these investigative stories on TV series or whatnot, you'll see them put stuff underneath their nose before they deal with a dead body. It's to it's to alleviate the uh, the strong smell, if you will, the stench of it of a dead body. So they are practicing, of course. This here to preserve the body in a better uh, manner. So Nicodemus is doing this. And he at first, of course, uh, 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 met Christ there in John chapter 3, or approached Christ. And he's bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. And why would the Holy Spirit tell us he brought about a hundred pounds weight? Because it's a lot. It's a whole bunch of it. And it's expensive. So here's Joseph and Nicodemus members of the sanhedrin the very power that brought Christ to his death wealthy men men of influence coming forward encouraged no longer in cowardice but encouraged to make sure that the provisions are properly instated for Jesus i find that so fascinating how their journey began so broadly in their conversation and again if we go back to when nicodemus was having a conversation with jesus in john chapter 3 Jesus was speaking of the new birth, which is necessary, by the way. It's not something we can simply throw away as an opinion. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, unless that happens, you cannot be a legal citizen of the kingdom. You cannot be the recipient of the freely given gift of the gospel, salvation, forgiveness of sins. You will not be added to the church in which Christ purchased and built you. You are... Missing the mark if you are not born again. Therein also, in his instruction, giving us the free-willed mind to obey. Not through meritoriously earning our salvation or boasting of it. Yeah, I was born again. You better let me into heaven. Not at all. We don't have that power within ourselves. It's the full trust, faith in Christ and what he has produced. And... He was speaking to Nicodemus with this now revealed mystery. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again. And Nicodemus, of course, in his mind, a religious man, understanding the texts of the old and understanding the scriptures to his culture. Why would a man need to be born again? And how can a man be born again? Out of his mother's womb? Like that. I don't understand. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again out of water and the Spirit. The interaction there must have left an impression on Nicodemus. You see, a Jew would have been born in the covenant of Judaism, through the lineage of the Abrahamic promise. Born and raised to read, recite, teach, preach, and meditate upon the scriptures. Why on earth is this man, from Nazareth of all places, telling me I need to be born again? I'm a Jew. I am a son of the kingdom. Yet the first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is he speaking about a kingdom? And what is he speaking about? We need to be born again. Blood and water, verse 34. Blood and water, verse 34. Born again out of water and the Spirit. Could Nicodemus be... Understanding or beginning to understand or entertaining the thought that perhaps there's a connection with being immersed, born again, out of water, and the connection to the blood of Christ? Could it be that Acts 22.16 is rightly handled with these instructions? Born again, water and blood, if I'm born, my children were born in my family. They were born with the family name. My son Joshua is a Maie. He was born in the Maie family. What's the family name of an individual who's born in the family of God? Born again in the family of God. Christian. Who gives that descriptive family name? Well, not me, not you, but God. Could Nicodemus have attained that information and began to understand the necessity and the importance of who Jesus was as a king crowned to the kingdom? Interesting information. We'll talk a bit more about that soon, but let's move forward here. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, uh, about a hundred pounds weight. We're speaking about an abundance in which would measure the, the man's wealth. He has the money to do so. So they took the body, in verse 40, of Jesus and bound it in linen, wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in verse 41, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. A tomb that was carved in the rock. That would have been very expensive in the first century. To have a tomb carved in the rock. Because it took the manpower to do so, and the tools to do so, and the willingness, and also, again, the socio-political prestige of the community, understanding, well, we still do that today. If we see the locations of burial grounds, we can see how someone may have a wooden cross. And yet, a few steps later, we see someone with a beautiful sepulcher, a, a wonderful sepulcher. And... One may tell you this was a lowly, humble, perhaps even needy person who departed. And you'll look at the other one and say, well, this individual must have been a very wealthy man, or a wealthy family. I find it interesting that they crucified Jesus, the Nazarene. A humble, lowly, shameful death, yet in his burial as a king. Taking care of... By the same socio-political powers that brought him to his death now, in their actions, professing him to be the king. A king's burial. I find that quite revealing. I find that quite interesting. And my dear friends, this book is a box of treasures and we find gems all over the place if we're paying attention. Now in the place where he had, he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. In verse 42, finishing the chapter says, Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The body of a man, God on earth, who had the authority to have control Into which his departure would take place, is buried a king. So interesting. It's interesting to see the faith of the men, Joseph and Nicodemus, grow throughout the history of Jesus' ministry, which was approximately three years, and how they began in such a broad way but now have recognized the narrow path that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. In Christ upon the fulfillment, of course, of the death, burial, and resurrection, we know through the scriptures that he was crowned king of his kingdom. To which you and I today are blessed to be legal citizens of that kingdom. Through which means, of course, well, through Christ, there is no other name. Our faith in Christ. Blood and water. The kingdom of our Lord and Master, in which he... Proclaimed repentance and the necessity of repentance. The kingdom therein was birthed from the mind of God. It does not come from the origin of man. It comes from the mind of God. Birthed from the mind of God. Prophesied by the prophets of old. Promised by the Christ. Purchased by his blood. And practiced by our faith. The kingdom, of course, and its doors opened, witnessed and recorded in the pages of Acts chapter 1 and 2 and following. And all who heard the message of the apostles who stood up among the people, proclaiming the death, burial, resurrection, witness, and ascension of the Messiah, they were pierced at heart, they believed the evidence proclaimed to them, and they needed, out of desperation, in their belief of the Messiah, to whom they had just crucified. Men and brethren, what shall we do? be saved how can we once again be in friendship with God the father after we've murdered his son we have blood on our hands and the apostles told them the keys the conditions repent change your mind change the way you think and let every one of you calling on his name be immersed born again Plunged, dipped, submerged, clothed, buried. For it is the power of His resurrection. Born again, blood and water. We go to the water and we are washed by the blood. That takes faith. That takes faith. And sadly, many people don't have that faith. They only see water. You have to see the tomb of Christ as a king, to which you can raise again with Him. Don't believe me. Believe what you can read from the Holy Spirit. That brings forth the conclusion, of course, to this portion of Scripture in a rightly handled manner, and the availability to all souls to be saved by Jesus while you walk on this earth. If you have any comments or questions, by all means, you can express them afterwards. But uh, we shall move forward now with a uh, song.